0: one or some version of that. I can't keep this up. I can't keep doing this. Uh, It's a fairly universal kind of human feeling that we have all sensed at times. And sometimes uh, it's a, you know, just surface level thing. Like I can't keep being the only one who does the dishes, right? I can't keep this up. And you know, it's like, all right, all right, chill out. I'll do some dishes, right? But other times it's something uh, uh, way more deep. Something there's an existential angst in us at times of, I can't keep this up, whatever this might be. Maybe it's a a career path or a deep sense of loneliness or an ongoing low-level anger that lives just below the surface and has a way of finding its way out at the most inopportune times. (laughs) Uh, part of the part of the issue that there is for us to deal with this sort of low-level angst of I can't keep this up is that if we merely remain in that, we just end up giving up. And and the problem with that most often is we tend to give up the wrong things and double down on the wrong things. Does that make sense? Or give up the right things that we should keep after and double down on the wrong things. We give up on relationships. I can't keep this up with you. And so we quit you. If we'll stay in it just a little bit, if we'll, as you've come to know me to say, if we if we will remain in it and pull the trap door between the I can't keep this up, we'll oftentimes drop to a lower level, a more deep soul thing that's going on in us that is something far, far more helpful to us, I believe, which is there has got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. Now, when we start to move to that, we've moved to a little better place. I would argue a place where God can actually do something. If God is real, and if he's at work in the world, I am quite confident both of those are true. I recognize that that is not a universal sense of confidence, and I respect that deeply. Uh, But my card's on the table. I really believe God is real, and he's at work in this world. And if you and I, if we as a community can get to a place where we say, not just I can't keep this up, whatever the this is, but get to a place of there's got to be a better way, we open up space for God to work in miraculous and marvelous ways. Turn with me to Esther chapter eight. If you're using a copy of the print, uh, if not uh, already scanned the QR code behind me, then you're you're way ahead of the game. Uh, if not grab that uh, and get there, that's going to get you to Esther chapter eight. And for those who would like just a little bit of a refresher on the story and where we're at in this kind of summer long journey through This really peculiar book of Esther, Uh, let me do my best to get you up to speed on the pieces that might matter most for this week. This really bad dude, Haman, has hatched a scheme to uh, murder, kill, genocide all the Jews in the greater region of Persia. Uh, Most of the Jews, or at least a good number of the Jews, had been released from their captivity in Babylon, in the Persian region, and allowed to go back to Jerusalem, their homeland. And, and the vast majority of Jews actually did do that and, and went back. But a lot remained. They, had built, they had built lives in Babylon. Uh, they, and this is a hearkening back to Jeremiah 29. Not the, for I know I, the plans I have for you, which is lovely and beautiful. But just before that, verses 4 through 6 of 29, or maybe the more pivotal ones, which is, uh, you're going to a place where I'm sending you. Plant gardens, build homes, marry off your kids to foreigners and build a life there. And that place I'm sending you to was Babylon. And so fast forward a couple, six, seven decades and the people have been released back to Jerusalem and some have remained. And this Haman hatches a scheme to have them all genocide and have them all killed and murdered unbeknownst to the king. His new queen, this beautiful young lady, which is a subplot in and of itself, uh, is Jewish. And he doesn't actually even know that. And so she gets involved and becomes a redemptive force for her people. The bad guy, Hammond, is found out to be a bad guy. And uh, last week, he is, um, how shall we say, Um, removed I love having an English woman in the room, you know, removed. Yes, impaled, put on a spick to uh, be cooked. Uh, Anyway, he's gone and uh, history. The bad guy's been killed and now there's just kind of this pesky issue of an irrevocable decree that the king has made to have all of the Jews killed throughout the land. And that's kind of where we pick up the story. Uh, Pray with me, and then we'll dive into some snippets here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we've already prayed this morning, uh, you exist in perfect community. And you have created us as a people in your image to live in perfect community. Shape us into your likeness continue to shape us into your likeness in these moments together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Esther chapter eight, for the sake of time, I'm going to jump around a little bit. So hang with me uh, for those, um, you got the whole thing in front of you, so you can um, check me out here, but I'm going to, I'm going to start in uh, verse seven for the sake of time here. So uh, then the King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, Mordecai is kind of her surrogate dad. And uh, I have given Esther the property of Haman, and he has been impaled on a pole because he tried to destroy the Jews. Now, go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name, telling them whatever you want, and seal it with the king's signet ring. But remember that what has already been written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can never be revoked. We fast forward a little bit into uh, verse 11. The king's decree gave the Jews in every city authority to unite to defend their lives. They were allowed to kill, to slaughter, and to annihilate. Got to help me figure out the difference between those three words. They seem somewhat redundant, but, you know, I don't wasn't trained in war, so maybe... There's some nuance there. Anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them, their children, their wives, or to take their property of their enemies. Verse 12, the day chosen for this event throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes was March 7th of the next year. Now, fast forward to verse 16 with me. Uh, You may be reading in between, and that's wonderful too, but Verse 16, the Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere. And catch, this is really fascinating. In every province and city, I'm in verse 17, wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday. And many of the people in the land became Jews themselves for they feared what the Jews might do to them. Okay. A little exhale on that one. I want you to take a minute, and I want to encourage you uh, to process through two things. Um, Nobody's going to ask you um, to share, okay? I'm not going to ask you to share, and uh, there's no gotcha. I'm not going to pick on you, okay? But two things. One, um, what are your immediate feelings when you read this? What do you feel immediately? Think deeply. Probably your first response is accurate. What do you feel immediately about, emotionally? It's probably pretty simple. The second one is this. Why do you feel that way? Whatever it is you feel. Maybe like the Jews in that you feel joyful and celebratory. There, maybe you feel something different. What? Why do you feel that way? Well, I don't know, Stu. Well, take a minute. Why do you feel that way? Because certainly, uh, we all likely feel some sense of relief. In that story, right? I mean, we're invested at this point. Some of us, some of you, have been here every week of the series, and you're you're invested in this story. And we love Esther, and she's this beautiful heroine who uh, we'll get to a little bit later, but has some beautiful parallels to the restorative way of Jesus, protecting God's people. Maybe you feel joy with the Jews. Maybe you you find yourself coming to that side, and you think, yeah. I feel great about it. Maybe you feel all kinds of conflicting feelings as well, right? But now they're finally giving getting a chance to fight the good fight, right? I mean, in fact, even their own sacred texts that they would have at their disposal, uh, orally through friends sharing it, uh, and some pieces had been written down by now that maybe they had seen come to their village or or had heard about in Jerusalem, even their own sacred texts have story after story after story of God protecting them in some fairly wild and amazing ways. Even all the violence from the Old Testament would often appear at first glance to have been sanctioned by God himself. And, and maybe even in that sense, you, you think, as I am prone to think, um, I'm not really thinking that deeply about it, Stu. It's just like, you know, sometimes ends justify the means, right? You got to protect people, right? Or lesser of two evils, right? We often use that kind of language in our world and culture. Well, it's the lesser of two, I've only got two choices. I'm going to choose the lesser of the two evils, right? Or maybe, you know, win or lose, I'd rather win, I'm a pretty highly competitive guy. I just lost uh, a fantasy league for the first time in um, 6,000 years. No, I mean, it's been a long time and I I lost a fantasy league in a sport I love and um, I'm not speaking to any of those friends anymore. Um, I'm a competitive guy. So, you know, win or lose, you give me the option between winning and losing, I'd rather win because I'm a pretty gracious winner. Hey, come on, haven't you, haven't you done this? The tropes go on and on and on. I think any conclusion consistent with that as it relates to this story would be understood, and um, I've certainly felt it as well. After all, the way of this world has proven that that is the way of this world. That's how we get things done. But the whole story of Esther begins to paint a little bit of a different picture for us as we remain in it. We get this picture of Esther that's been developing for many weeks, and, and many of those who've stood on this stage and, and shared thoughts about it have shared this sort of parallel and this kind of at least snapshot of this messianic picture that really runs a thread all the way through the Old Testament, the, these little snapshots of what a messianic character looks like, what a deliverer and a restorer looks like. And Esther presents for us this beautiful snapshot of somebody who is a humble one, but who rises to influence and who delivers hope to their people who are vulnerable. So it's a very kind of Jesus-y looking messianic picture. She serves as a glimpse of, to the person and the Messiah of Jesus. Given a glimpse of how Esther gets it done and how that world and culture would allow for things to get done, it comes into frame. And even the story that has confused me for decades of Peter in in the garden with Jesus after Jesus is like, hey, just wait here and pray. And he falls asleep, wait and pray. And he falls asleep, wait and pray. And he falls asleep. And then they come to a rest. And now all of a sudden, Peter's wide awake. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that? Like, why aren't you sleeping now, pal? Well, because now I can hurt somebody. And he grabs the sword and he cuts off the ear. And Jesus looks at him. And I I, part of, I mean, this is just Stu's revised version, but part of it's like, oh, now all of a sudden you're awake, huh? Wow, got a red Bull in you, didn't you? Heals the ear. This isn't how we do things in my kingdom. But one would be forgiven for thinking that way because this is the way of the world. If you're gonna break up with me, I break up with you first, right? If you're gonna leave me, I leave you first. If you're gonna pick on me, I pick on you first. If you're gonna litigate me, I sue you back. If you swing at me, I'll swing back. If you yell at me, I'll yell louder, right? Even in traffic, if you speed up to get in my lane, I speed up next to you. I mean, haven't you done, we did, just this morning we had this. uh, My youngest, Aaron, has his permit. We're driving here this morning and he's trying to change lanes. And these guys just keep speeding up, speeding up, speeding up. And what do I tell him? What any good parent would, you know, just move over on him. Rubbing his racing, right? 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 It's a bit of a build-up. I, I, you probably kind of get where I'm going a little bit here. Um, and and the simple fact is this. This kind of way of living that we see here, it's not sustainable. You can't actually be human. If every time you wrong me, I wrong you back, That we can't be human. Because it will just... Right? Someone ends up dead. It's pretty hard to be human when you're dead. You know, you're dead. Like... It, I'm talking about eternity. Don't send me an email. You get my point. Of course, history has taught us that this kind of logic is what leads our lives, but we know, like, we know that violence begets violence. We know that coercion only leads to more coercion. We know, in an argument with a loved one or spouse, that if we just scream louder, never in the history of the world has somebody said, you know what, you're making an excellent point there. I humble myself. No, it's never happened, right? It's like somebody's angry in your house. You tell them, just calm down. How does that work when you say that? Does that, is that where you're laughing? So I'm guessing it doesn't work for you either. Um, You know, just calm down. It's gonna be fine. We know that greed will never satisfy. It will only lead to more greed. We know these things, like we know them here. And chapter eight summons us to see it play out. It, chapter eight is not a playbook for living, friends. Chapter eight is a vision of a spiraling society in desperate need of a Messiah. Maybe your initial feeling when hearing the story read or reading the story was something in the ter- territory of like, we just, we can't keep doing this. Like, humanity can't keep doing this. And I think you would be right. And as a society that has lived through a couple of world wars and a whole bunch of other stuff that most of us civilians don't even know happened, we know that it just begats more of the same. So when Jesus arrives on the scene and begins his ministry, he delivers a new way to live. The two can't live in harmony. I can't coerce you and overpower you and live the way of Jesus. They don't work. The economies are different. It's like arriving in a foreign nation with Canadian coins. They don't take Canadian coins in Canada. I mean, it's like the most, sorry, Canadians, but it's like the most worthless currency on earth. Like, it will get you nowhere. Jesus, in the early stages of his ministry, takes these new followers who have sort of glommed onto them, and he goes, "Hey, let's go up the mountain that overlooks the city." And this is a beautiful picture. I've not been to the Holy Land. Anybody been to the Holy Land yet? Yeah, we're not friends anymore. Um, no. <laughs> I want to go so bad. but So you'll, you'll know this better than I. I should have you come share it. But he takes him up on the Sermon on the Mount. He takes him up to the hillside nearest the city, as I understand it, and up there overlooks the city. As if to say, here's everything the world has to offer you. And then he starts in on this revolutionary teaching that says, God blesses the humble. They get everything what? No, he doesn't. (laughs) God blesses the greedy. They get everything. Like, Jesus, like, I'm looking down at the city. Like, look at the houses. Like, the greedy win. Who is this young rabbi? This guy, what in the world? He goes, no, 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 wait, I got more. It gets worse. Uh, And he carries on. He goes, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. Some translations say righteousness justice, righteousness, hunger and thirst for it. Not hunger and thirst to get mine. Nope, that's not what God blesses. He says God blesses those who work for peace. And all of that in these early stages of Matthew chapter 5 up on this mountain. And later on in that same little conversation, or not little, it's a big conversation, but later on in that same conversation, Jesus goes into greater detail in some of these same ideas in Matthew five thirty-eight. He says, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. What? What are you talking about? If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer your other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear a mile, carry it two miles. For those of you who are buffs on the U.S. Constitution, and I love it dearly, and I love our country, this flies in the face of even some of that. And we have to contend with that, that the way of Jesus is a different way. It is an offensive way to the way of the world. Now, we can, you know, argue around it, and I'm great at that. I mean, you know, just create my own little world, you know. Well, you know, greed is bad, after my level of greed, right? Like my level of greed is the acceptable amount, right? Anger is bad, but I mean, everybody's a little angry, right? So, you know, I mean, you can be this angry as long as I don't throw anything. I mean, right? And we we negotiate these things. But let me say as clearly as I can that the story of Esther is not a roadmap for how to win in life. Heck, all they achieved was not dying. The story of Esther 8 is not a picture of humanity enjoying a good and gracious God and his economy and design for the world. He's not even ever mentioned in the book, after all. Never once It's the only book in all of the holy scriptures where God is never mentioned. This is not a roadmap for how to live in his good and gracious way. This is the Persian empire's breaking bad, okay? Or whatever the newest one is, right? There's always a new one. The story of Esther is an invitation to lament my own decrees of death and to declare, I can't keep living like this. It stands in contrast to the way of Jesus. And we all have decrees of death. Not degrees, but decrees of death. The story of Esther is an invitation to dig deeper and to say there has got to be another way. The story of Esther beckons us to give up the ways of this world and give in to the ways of Jesus. I know for some, it's like, oh gosh, it's so cheesy. Then ignore that part. But for some, that's helpful. The story of Esther is an invitation to give up on the ways of this world. And to say, I will no longer use the tactics and the strategies of this world. I will use the way of Jesus. And we have to wrestle with the reality of pragmatism in that. We we have to honestly own, but will it work? I don't know. Have we tried it? (laughs) To give ourselves to his way of life. A quick little uh, side comment. Uh, For many, uh, there is a sense of, um, I know God is here, but I don't always feel him. Or I am going to choose to believe that God is at work, but I don't always sense his presence. And to you who feel that way, and we all feel that way at various times. Now, some of us are better at lying about it, but we all feel that way at various times. Every time you choose to live the way of Jesus, when it's counter to your intuition, you announce the kingdom. You celebrate his presence every time. Now, you, you may not be the type who flings their hands in the air and sings with great joy or who shouts during worship or who goes on a mountain and prays and feels his presence. But every time you opt to live the way of Jesus, you announce the kingdom of God. You announce it. You live into it. You go, well, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know if he's real. I don't feel him. No, you, you just live out his way. Because you, you would not live out the way of Jesus if the Holy Spirit wasn't working in you. There is just no way. There is no reason to live a countercultural way that works for peace, that pursues humility, that loves and hungers and thirsts for justice. There is no earthly reason to be that kind of person unless there's an outside force we call the Holy Spirit working in you. And so in those moments we go, "Man, I just don't feel God." but you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm staying on this course. I'm gonna choose the way of Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit, my friend, working in you. Just rest easy. You're doing fine. You're gonna screw up all throughout the day. Just stay the course. He is shaping you in humility. He is developing your hunger for justice. He is encouraging you and helping you do the work of peace. And all of that is made possible through the cross of Christ, which we celebrate at the communion table. We celebrate a different way of living. Yes, we celebrate that our debt has been paid. Absolutely. We celebrate that Christ has risen from the dead and forgiven our sin. Yes, we do but we ultimately celebrate a different way of living. Because again, and I'm not not trying to be nitpicky here, but they celebrated the Last Supper before he had died and risen again. So there was a reason to celebrate that table then, and he hadn't died and rose again. Now, it doesn't mean we don't celebrate the cross of Christ and the resurrection, oh, absolutely, we do. But we can come to that table and actually celebrate a different way of living. And we take that bread, his body, broken for us, and that juice, his blood, shed for us, and we celebrate a new way of living. I want to invite the band. Join me up here, or what remains of the band for this last minute or so. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I pass on to you what I have received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it into pieces and he said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. A new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. The Apostle Paul goes on to say these important words. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. This is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. So I want to invite you in these next moments to do exactly that to take a moment to examine yourself. Not to heap hot coals or, oh, I'm such a terrible Christian. That's so self-serving and it will get you nowhere. Um, So that's not not where I would recommend you go. Um, Rather, I would do somewhat just the opposite, to take a minute to reflect on a new way of living that has been made possible through the cross of Christ. to rest in the reality that when your soul cries out, there's got to be another way. The other way is the way of Christ. This longing for greater humility, for deeper peace, to live out this beautiful, loving way of Jesus. That is the spirit at work. And that is only made possible through the cross of Christ, through his resurrection and his ascension. So take a moment and examine. And uh, then we're going to sing a song for a minute or so. And while we sing, I want to invite you to come up and get both elements, if you would. Uh, Don't eat them or partake yet. We're going to do it all together. So take a minute to examine. Then as we sing, come get your two elements and you can find your way back to wherever you'd like and uh, then we'll take the elements all together when it appears that we're all ready, okay? Take just a minute.